A reading from the first chapter of Genesis. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea, and God's wind swept over the waters. God said, let there be light. And so light appeared. God saw how good the light was. God separated the light from the darkness. God named the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. God said, let there be a dome in the middle of the waters to separate the waters from each other. God made the dome and separated the waters under the dome from the waters above the dome. And it happened in that way. God named the dome sky. There was evening and there was morning the second day. God said, let the waters under the sky come together into one place so that the dry land can appear. And that's what happened. God named the dry land earth and he named the gathered waters seas. God saw how good it was. God said, let the earth grow plant life, plants yielding seeds and fruit, trees bearing fruit with seed inside it, each according to its kind throughout the earth. And that's what happened. The earth produced plant life, plants yielding seeds each according to its kind, and trees bearing fruit with seeds inside it, each according to its kind. God saw how good it was. There was evening and there was morning, the third day. God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will mark events, sacred seasons, days and years. They will be lights in the dome of the sky to shine on the earth. And that's what happened. God made the stars and two great lights, the larger light to rule over the day and the smaller light to rule over the night. God put them in the dome of the sky to shine on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw how good it was. There was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. God said, let the waters swarm with living things and let birds fly above the earth up in the dome of the sky. God created the great sea animals and all the tiny living things that swarm in the waters, each according to its kind, and all the winged birds, each according to its kind. God saw how good it was. Then God blessed them. Be fertile and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning the fifth day. God said, let the earth produce every kind of living thing, livestock, crawling things, and wildlife. And that's what happened. God made every kind of wildlife every kind of livestock, <clears throat> and every kind of creature that crawls on the ground. God saw how good it was. Then God said, 
let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. Good morning, everybody. I'm Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. And today we are talking creation. I know, I feel the energy coming from exactly one person. Thank you, Devin. I rely on you, I do. But truly, this is going to be a fun day, I promise. I promise. You see, we're in a series called Rebuilding Faith After Deconstruction. And we're talking about what it means to revisit some of the building blocks, some of the essentials of our faith. After many of us have done some difficult and complicated work of dismantling the ways those things have been formed into toxic or harmful or just nonsensical structures in our faith and our faith communities. We are trying to deconstruct what feels wrong, what feels harmful in the faith that we have come up with and trying to figure out what it means to sit in the midst of that deconstruction as a community, figure out what pieces actually are holy and how to reform them into a coherent faith that makes sense. And one of the most difficult sets of kind of, you know, strewn about Jenga blocks that a lot of people I meet deal with is creation. What are we to think what are we to believe about how all of these things came to be? You see, so many of us were taught that uh, we had to understand the Bible in a quote-unquote literalist way, that we were supposed to take the Bible seriously, that the Bible clearly says that creation was made in seven literal days. Others of us were told that that's ridiculous and science and science says evolution, and therefore the Bible is old-fashioned nonsense and has nothing to say about how we came into being. And very few of us were given the tools to honor and respect, to love and cherish both our scriptures' account of creation and our science and scientists' account of creation. Now, one of the reasons that these things have been um, so difficult to reconcile is because they are pitted to, to against one another in the first place. And like, I don't know if it's just my little non-binary heart over here being like, I want it all. But <laughs> I actually don't believe that these things are opposed to one another at all. You see, science and scripture are asking and answering entirely different sets of questions with entirely different sets of resources. And so when we pit science and religion against each other, we assume that they're involved in the same exact project, that they're offering competing answers to a same question. When in fact, truth is a lot more complicated than we like to pretend. Now, science approaches truth from the scientific method, which is about observing reality understanding patterns, naming what we can see, repeating itself over time. Storytelling 
and mythology and scripture and religion is also about truth. But it's about the kind of truth that you understand through narrative, through relationship. And so to pretend that the scriptures have the market cornered on truth as though science has nothing additional to say is bonkers. But similarly, pretending that science with its method of observation is the only way to to examine truth is also nonsensical. Because that's like comparing physics and literature. That's like saying you can learn nothing from a beautiful painting because math has already explained it to you. And to compete between math and art, between literature and physics, is to entirely miss the point of the complexity of truth and what it means to be human. These are are streams that come together to give us a fuller picture of who we are. Our God is not anti-science, and our science should not be anti-spirituality, certainly not anti-storytelling, anti-history. And so when we understand that Genesis and the other creation stories, but I'll get to them, in the scriptures, are telling us something else, something more than what science can teach us, just as science is telling us something more than what the scriptures can teach us, we no longer have to duke it out between evolution and a seven-day creation. Although we will, in the same way that we meet science, on its own terms, have to meet our scripture on its own terms. And that's something that we are not, most of us, prepared to do. Because so much of our Christian tradition in this country, in this area of the world, has been built on approaching scriptures from a really modernist perspective. Treating the Bible like a textbook, treating the Bible like a newspaper, instead of treating the Bible like this ancient collection of stories, of myths, of histories, of accounts of what it means to be a person in creation in relationship with God and others in that moment in time and what that has to tell us for the rest of time. Now, when we talk about the creation story in the Bible, we have to talk about the creation stories in the Bible. How many creation stories are you aware of in Scripture? All right, I see a couple students who have been in my classroom before or have been somewhere else and learned it holding up two fingers. There are two creation stories. And if I had asked you how many creation stories are in Genesis, I would agree with you. But there are many creation stories throughout the Scriptures. Some people would argue that there are up to 20 creation stories creation narratives. They, are, they appear in the Psalms as poetry. They appear in Isaiah as historical accounts of what God has done. There are over and over these accounts of what it meant for things to come into being through the one true God. I want to read you one of my favorites because it shouts out an aspect of God that I think gets extremely downplayed, and that is wisdom. Wisdom is a feminine expression that some would argue is divine, that maybe our trinity is a little bit more of a quadrilateral. (laughs) But in this passage, it does say 
that God created wisdom, which is one of the reasons that it doesn't get included in that same understanding. But in Proverbs 8, the scriptures say, from the voice of wisdom, she says, the Lord created me at the beginning of the way, before God's deeds long in the past. I was formed in ancient times at the beginning before the earth was. When there were no watery depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs flowing with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before God made the earth and the fields or the first of the dry land, I was there when God established the heavens, when God marked out the horizon on the deep sea, when God thickened the clouds above, when God secured the fountains of the deep, when God set a limit for the sea so the water couldn't go beyond God's command, when God marked out the earth's foundations, I was beside God as a master of crafts. I was having fun smiling before God all the time, frolicking with God's inhabited earth and delighting in the human race. Now, how many of your Sunday school classes had you talk about that one? This is a depiction of the creation from the perspective of wisdom. Wisdom who is so ancient, before the beginnings of what we understand as the cosmos, but also all the way up to frolicking with God and delighting in humanity. Wisdom is, is with us, has observed, has been around, and continues on to guide humanity. But one of the things you may notice in here is all the references to water the deep, the fountain, God separating the waters, God carving out this place for humanity. We will return again and again to the waters. But right now, I want to bring you back to Genesis. Now, for those of you who are like, well, I also didn't know that there were two creation stories in Genesis, don't worry, because that's been really, really kind of sidelined as well. So if you were like, um, there's one story in the Bible, in the beginning, we just read it, it's page one, what are all of you people talking about? The reality is that Genesis tells one creation story right after the other. I was tempted to include them both, but as much as I like to just sit around listening to Ruth read the Bible, I know that probably we should cap it at some point. So I got like 30 verses in and called it a day. That one that we are familiar with in that kind of like beginning sense, right? In the beginning. In the beginning, that's, you know, and day one, day two, and God's doing it, and God's doing it, and it's good, and it's good, and then it's real good, right? <laughs> we know that one. But weirdly, you're actually also very familiar with the second creation story in Genesis, which comes immediately afterward. That's the one where things happen a little differently. You see, God, without as much of a strict timeline, it says that God forms the earth and the sky and a human being. God creates a human being. And then after God creates a human being, God creates vegetation and specifically a garden and places the human being in the garden. 
Now, God wants this human being to have companionship. And so God creates for them animals and birds and lets this human name them all. But everyone is sort of insufficient as a companion. And so after all this experimenting, God creates another human out of the first one to say, you will be fully equal. You will be of one another's flesh. Now, the order of things matters here because we're seeing a very particular kind of God. This God is intimate and experimental. This God doesn't necessarily know what they're doing from jump, right? Like, if this God had it unlocked, there wouldn't have needed to be all those other animals and birds. But this is a process. This is a process by which God and the first human being are figuring out what it means to be related to each other. In this story, the one you're so familiar with, with the apple, with Adam and Eve, with the nakedness, with the fall, that is a story where the main character is humanity. Where did we come from? Who are we? What is our relationship to God and to the rest of creation? These are not science questions. These are not the questions of evolution, the questions of historical fossil record. These are questions of meaning. Who are we to one another? Who are we to the animals of the earth? We have a responsibility to the animals, to the garden, to the vegetation. We are to be stewards. And also, we are God's first intention. Humanity is valued in a distinct way. And human beings are made equal to one another to be connected in love, companionship, and help. These are the answers to a very different set of questions that Genesis 2 answers in contrast to the questions raised by science. So then what is Genesis 1 about? Let there be light and all of that. Days 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, nap. Right? Like, what is that narrative about? Well, in contrast to Genesis 2, to the garden, to that experiment, to that intimacy. I mean, in Genesis 2, God is creating human beings out of dirt and clay and their very breath. Sometimes that's translated as the kiss of God. That is intimate. That is material. That is flesh. And later, when God is creating the second human being and creating the first couple, God says, you are, are of one another. Adam says to Eve, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Genesis 2 is about breath and flesh and bone and blood and earth, about animals and plants and connection and relationship, intimacy and experimentation mistakes. There are a lot of mistakes in Genesis 2 and 3. So what is Genesis 1 about? Genesis 1 depicts a very different God, or at least a different aspect of God. Genesis 1 highlights God's power, God's wholeness, God's ability to impact all things. God, the God of Genesis 1 is a little bit more distant that creation story is awesome in the most literal sense. Like, 
You hear it, you imagine it, and it is meant to evoke a kind of like, wow. Wow. The main character of Genesis 1 is God. And the question being answered is not how did creation come to be, but who created? Who is this God? And not just technically God Yahweh, but like who is God Yahweh? What do we know about God? So in Genesis 1, order also matters a lot. But we have a different order of creation. And again, if we are told that we have to take things literally in a way that means a seven-day literal creation, we run into trouble as early as chapter 2. Because in Genesis 1, things are created in a different order with a different purpose. On day 1, God separates light from dark. On day 2, God separates waters above and below. On day 3, God moves the oceans, the waters, uncovering dry land. Notice that we're three days in and God hasn't actually created anything. On day four, God creates the sun, the moon, the stars. On day five, sea creatures and birds. On day six, land animals and humans. And on seven, that well-earned nap. So, we have a different order. Which means, not that one of these stories is wrong, but that these stories are communicating different truths about who God is, who we are, and the beginning of all things. So what is this story trying to tell us? Well, in order to meet the text on its own terms, in its own culture, in its own context, we have to do some observing. Now, when you think of let there be light, when you think of the beginning, what do you picture before the light? That's a real question. I want you to shout it out. Darkness, nothingness, void. Okay. All right. Before the light, we picture, or at least those of us who have shouted out, basically the, like the vacuum of space, right? Like a nothingness, a before anythingness. We're picturing like pre-Big Bang because that is what our cultural context has taught us comes before light, before all things. But that's not what's happening in Genesis 1. That's not what was happening in Proverbs either. This is where we come back to the water. You see, in Genesis 1, God does not move over nothingness, though it is sometimes translated as a formless void. And we associate void with nothingness. But that is not what the ancients associated they were thinking about a dark, churning chaos of eternal waters. Cool. Like, we have no context for that. Like, why? Just like, why? But then, if we think about it for like a couple minutes, these are folks that all lived near seas that were too big to navigate beyond. The sea which seemed eternal beyond the land they were in. The sea which seemed to come before and after everything they knew. The sea, the waters, 
where the thing that felt eternal, the thing that surrounded them, we feel surrounded by nothingness because we have certain concepts of space. But they had concepts of ocean. And so before there was light, before there was habitability, before there was what could be, there was the water. The chaotic water, the water which could not be tamed or controlled, the water which could crash down and subsume any light or life. That is what existed. And so, in the ancient Near East, it was the chaos out of which God formed, not the nothingness. Now, another area that we get our nothingness concepts from is actually ancient Greece. We talked about Greek philosophy a little bit these last few weeks because they have had a huge impact on how we understand our scriptures. But we have to know that this passage, the Hebrew scriptures, predates Greek philosophy by like a lot. These stories were told long before Greek philosophy was around to have an influence on the way we thought about God. Now, Greek philosophers, most notably Aristotle, talked about God as the prime mover, the God who was before all things. Greek philosophy was interested in asking, who made the waters? And that feels like a natural question to us, right? Like, who created the waters? Our definition of God rests on the idea that God created all things, that God is the thing that existed before anything else existed. That's just not the premise of Genesis 1. That is not the premise of the Hebrew scriptures. That is not the premise of this story. This story takes for granted the chaos, the waters. And God created out of something, not nothing. And so what does God do? God doesn't start out by creating, actually. Remember? God spends three days ordering the chaos. You see, that phrase that is translated as formless void really has two particular points. Formless was an aspect of that chaos. It was without order. And the void meant that it was without substance, without life, without creation. And so, in Genesis 1, we have this beautiful parallel where on day one, God starts separating things, ordering things, the light and the dark. But not until day four do we get the sun, the moon, and the stars. Why? Well, because God is setting everything in order, giving everything a place, and then creating it. God separates light from dark on day one. Corollary day four creates sun, moon, and stars. On day two, God separates the waters above and below. And the waters separated create air, essentially, the sky. And so on day five, day two's corollary, we get sea creatures and birds. Day three, God moves the waters away from the ocean floor to create land. And its corollary, day six, is when we get land animals and human beings. So if you're wondering about the order of things and basically like why birds got top billing, that's why. Because God has to create space. God is ordering the chaos. God is shifting those waters to create room for all creation, 
This is not creation from nothing. This is carving out space among the chaos. And what this results in is a picture of ancient cosmology. Because if you're like, okay, God's separating the waters. God's putting like a dome in the sky. Okay, cool. Like that dome sort of presupposes a flat earth. Like, okay, and then, then there's like supposedly waters above the dome, right? All of this sounds totally nonsensical to us because we think of things in terms of our scientific understanding of, of like our solar system. But that is not the like most up-to-date science of Genesis 1. And so they're working from a different premise. And I want to show you that premise. We have a picture, a diagram of the concept of ancient cosmology. So this is how the universe was thought to be ordered at the time. And like before, we're like, <laughs> so cute. Like this was the most observable understanding of the world at that time. And it wasn't because they were ignorant, it was because they were operating on what they had access to. So they were surrounded by water. You'll notice there is earth in the middle, surrounded by water. They didn't know that beyond the waters that they were capable of navigating was more dry land. So in their observation, which is like the core of what we understand science to be, there was water. So the earth was surrounded by water. Now another thing they observed was that the waters weren't pressing down on them, but they also looked up to the sky and saw that the deep blue of the water was pretty similar to the light blue of the day and the deep dark blue of the night. And so they said, oh, there must be water up there too, but we're not drowning in it. So God must have put up a dome to protect us from the waters, to keep them up there. And by that dome, God put in all these beautiful celestial bodies. And God opens up those heavens from time to time, the floodgates, to let water rain down on us. These were observations. And so they, you know, they conceptualize this earth that is one of the, the books that I um, was, was referencing for today describes it as like, imagine you had like a snow globe dunked in a bathtub. That's the understanding of the earth. And you can imagine how powerful this God must be to carve out space in those infinite waters, those threatening, chaotic waters, to create order and then fill it with life. And so this is the understanding of what the earth was. Now, Genesis is not trying to argue that this is what the earth was. This was the common cultural understanding. Genesis is arguing if this then who? Who has the power to do that? And why? What are they trying to accomplish? The answer is God, Yahweh, has the power to do this and to do so with care and intention. Now, one of the things that comes up if you start looking into this is that this creation story is not like entirely unique. Has anybody ever like heard or heard people hinting at or like maybe some like really passionate atheists like yelling at you on the internet that this story 
has a lot of striking similarities to a Babylonian myth. It's called the Enuma Elish. And like it predates the story we have from Genesis 1. And I just want to move through some of the things for you. In this myth, this Babylonian myth, Babylonians, importantly, had, had been like the dominating empire occupying um, the Hebrew people for a long time. Very, very good, like, uh, thorough mixing of cultures. So the Babylonian myth begins with the chaos, not nothing. Light exists before the celestial bodies, as in Genesis 1. There is a barrier created to separate the waters and create place for life. The sequence of days are extremely similar, including the creation of the firmament, the dry land, the celestial bodies, humanity, and rest. Is anyone else, like, bummed out about that? Yeah. Like, like for real, are you guys bummed? Does that, like, make you uncomfortable to know that there is a myth that predates Genesis 1 that, that feels like maybe a little bit of plagiarism took place? Anyone willing to share why? If you know, like, why does it bum you out? We have the truth. We have the truth, which means no one else can have the truth. And so if someone else had it before us, it must not be true. Or maybe that's true, but that means ours isn't. Does that resonate? Yeah. Yeah, I've got a confession. It bummed me out, too, for a really long time when I learned this. And I did. I started to ask myself why, and I came to some very similar conclusions. But it comes from this idea that the Bible, as we talked about earlier, it's supposed to be precise scientific truth, right? Which we've been discussing. It's not. That's not its intention. It's supposed to have the market cornered on truth. It's supposed to be the only one that's true, which means that anything else that could resemble it must be undermining it rather than supporting it. And, and I realized this this week when I was sitting with this, I needed that creation story to come from nothing. I needed it not to build on other cultures, other cultures, other understandings. I need it to not be located in the ancient Near East. I have a desire for it to stand alone in time as truth, as objective. I have a fantasy that our creation story needs to be capital T truth that is not impacted by its relationship to who's telling it or what they know or think about the rest of the world. I'm still clinging to my idea my fantasy of objectivity rather than remembering all the things we talked about last week about God not being someone who stands apart, unaffected by all the relationships, but God being squarely set in culture and time and relationship and impacted by that. That that actually is by design and not a deficit. I wanted it to come from nothing and be true on its own. But Genesis doesn't talk about creation from nothing. Genesis talks about creation from chaos. 
Genesis is not interested in my search for an objective capital T better than science truth. Genesis is interested in telling truths from a contextual storytelling standpoint. This is a story. Truth is meaning. And Genesis isn't trying to be the only source of truth. Genesis is trying to point to God as the source of truth. It doesn't need to create from nothing because there's so much rich storytelling to already build on. Genesis uses shared meaning and culture to create something new, to point to a different God than the ones idolized by the culture around, a truth understood through common experience and expression. And in so many ways, Genesis and the creation stories in it, Genesis is doing what we're doing here deconstructing a toxic understanding and using the building blocks of common meaning, the truth that is embedded in what we know, to construct new, more holy understandings of what is true. Genesis begins with the chaos and darkness, just like the Babylonian myth. But in the Babylonian myth, the darkness is actually ruled by a god of chaos, Tiamat. And she has power behind her chaos. The light comes in before the celestial bodies. But it's actually her grandson, Marduk, who is mad at her. We have petty gods. We've got this whole mix of family drama. And Marduk is like, I'm not into you, Grandma. I see your game. I'm coming for you. You might be in charge of chaos, but I'm more powerful than you. And so they go at it. Marduk murders her, fillets her from top to bottom, and takes part of her body and pushes her chaos away. And the barrier that separates the chaos from life is half of Marduk's dead grandmother's filleted body. I know we have some reality fans in here. Absolutely, that is drama. The sequence of the days of what gets put into creation from there is similar, right? You've got the firmament, all dripping down from grandma, dry land, the, the celestial bodies, which were also considered godlike, and then humanity. And then Marduk takes a nap. Now, in this story, human beings are not the culmination, but an afterthought. They are made to do the grunt work of lazy gods. And our spiritual ancestors, who have this common cosmology and this common story, said, no, no, no. No, you've got it wrong. It's not these petty, warring, violent gods with their family drama. We are not a byproduct of someone else's gruesome fight. They said, we are created by the one God. Not a warring family, not this whole bickering mess, not violence. We are created from the God who actually can enter into chaos and create order, can protect us. We have a God who cannot be overwhelmed by the chaos 
but shines brightly in it and creates space, carves out space for us, creating on purpose. And the celestial bodies, they are not there to be other things that we fear or worship. They are there to order our seasons of worship. They are there to move us through time, to be present with us as we remember our God. And our God created out of beauty and hope and love. At every step of the way, God created on purpose, saying, this is good. I want this. I am here with you, observing you. This is good. And God got to humanity and said, ooh, this is my favorite. This is the best thing I've made yet. Humanity is not an afterthought. Humanity is not here to do the chores or grunt work of lazy, petty, violent, warring gods. Humanity is the crowning jewel in God's intentional creation. God's magnum opus. This is the story of Genesis 1. It tells of a God who made us out of love and intention. It tells out of a God of a God who is with us on purpose. It tells of the of the world known by the people who would hear the story and says, "Hey, the world you live in, the things that you look to, they are all anchored by the intention of the one God who made you on purpose to be with you." And guess what? God marked you with a divine image. You are connected to this God, not as a slave or a grunt worker or an afterthought, but as God's hope for love and connection throughout the cosmos and time. The final creation story I want to remind you of is one that we've already talked about in this series. It is in John chapter 1. And this creation story says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word we remember, the Logos, is Jesus. The underlying logic of all created things. The God who is relational. God, Spirit, Jesus. The God who is with not warring, not petty, not forgetting us, but the God who made us on purpose. The logic of love that begins in creation, moves through the incarnation, dies and rises and sits in the heavens. The continuity throughout all time is Jesus, this intimate, loving, powerful force. And in the beginning was Jesus was the logic of love. And the logic of love was with God, and the logic of love was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through Jesus, the logic of love. And in it was life. And the life was the light of all people, and the light shines in the darkness. The light shines in the chaos, in the waters. And the darkness does not crash in on it. Our creation story is beautiful. Our creation story is true. Our creation stories tell us of who God is, who we are, and how we came to be. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for being so willing, so excited to speak to us through our many cultures and identities. We thank you for being a God, not so above it all, but excited to be a part of who we are. 
God, we pray that you would open our minds and spirits to receive your truth, to celebrate the traditions of science and storytelling, to celebrate the ancient cultures who taught us so much about who you are. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, the ability to perceive what you are doing, what you have done, and what you will do. We pray all of this in the logic of love. Amen.